0: Well, if you have your Bible, uh, turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. This is week three in a ten-week uh, series through the Ten Commandments. We're working our way uh, each week through a commandment at a time. I had a very good friend who was a pastor for many years, and he kind of grew up in and was actually trained initially in a in part of the fundamentalist movement and a very sort of legalistic church and um, you know, he was taught as an early age, and even as part of his early training, he was taught that, uh, you know, women should wear skirts at all times, they should never wear pants, uh, men should have their, their hair cut uh, short above their, their ears, uh, men should be clean shaven at all times, beards were considered uh, worldly, um, of course, you know, drinking alcohol even in, in moderation was considered uh, a sin, you know, wearing jeans to church would have been scandalous, it would have been... Uh, uh, an indication of rebellion and so on, and um, you know, the list goes on and on. Um, he was in seminary in a school of this same sort of mindset, and while he was also pastoring a small church, and he was at the church he pastored, they had Sunday morning and Sunday evening services, and so he was in the text of Scripture some 30 plus hours a week. And the more that he studied, the more that he started to realize a lot of these so called convictions, they're not actually rooted in the Bible, they come from and misinterpretation or in some cases an even abuse of the Bible, and sometimes done by loving and well-meaning people and other times promoted by, frankly, you know, power mongers. And so he started to realize, at the same time he came in contact with a book by Chuck Swindoll called Grace Awakening, and all of these things, the study of the Scripture, this book, helped him to realize they actually had been shackled to some very unbiblical ways of thinking. And so, with prayer, much prayer and and, and seeking counsel, uh, decided to enjoy the freedom that he had in Christ. And uh, started he grew his hair out really long. He never had his hair grown out, so he didn't realize how curly it was. Um, he looked kind of like Bob Ross, that guy who does the you know the paintings. He had this big curly uh, head of hair. Grew a big beard out, this huge bushy, very nice looking beard. Uh, started wearing jeans uh, to preach and started to enjoy uh, alcohol in moderation. He and his wife started taking dancing lessons and so on. And, um, and I noticed with him just this, this, there was a freedom, there was a joy, there was a lightness, all of these things. Um, but I also noticed that over time, so consumed with, you know, his new freedom, that he actually started to, in some ways, even uh, kind of uh, flaunt his freedom. I noticed that every time we would talk, he would talk about this new dark ale that he discovered, this pub that he'd been in. It was about, and it seemed like every conversation, every Facebook post was, was about some new beer that he had come across. And then I noticed, and this is what really stood out to, I noticed that he started to say things like, oh my God, and well God, John, or God Almighty, or whatever, and I started to think to myself, okay, is this, is this an area of freedom? Or is this actually a violation of the Scripture's teaching? What does it mean to take the Lord's name in vain? And what's, what's the big deal with it? Why is it so important? Uh, well, this morning we're going to look at this third command. And, you know, we look at it, we might think it's a little bit out of order. It comes before you shall not murder. It comes before you shall not commit adultery. And we read and we think, okay, what, what is going on here? Why does this matter so much? And why does it come with such a frightening warning? So let me read, uh, as I mentioned, we're going to kind of build each week on the previous text. So let me read Exodus 20, verses 1 through 7. The word of the Lord reads this way. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I the Lord am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And then the commandment in focus this morning. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain for the Lord will not hold guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now if you've been around here very long, you know that we we preach through the the ESV, the English Standard Version, and uh, it uses the phrase, in vain, to describe the misuse of God's name. The word vain means to use God's name uh, in an empty, worthless, or misguided way. A literal meaning of the Hebrew text uh, reading is this, You shall not lift up the name of the Lord for emptiness. So I want to look this morning at three things. I want to look at why it matters. Why does it matter how we use God's name? I want to look at how we actually do this and maybe ways that are unwittingly we're using the Lord's name in vain. Then what do we do about it now? So why does it matter? How do we do it? And what should we do about it now? First, why it matters. What's the big deal with the way we say God's name? Well, if these days if a couple's having a child, how do they go about choosing a name? Typically, what will happen is the, the husband and wife will each kind of write their own separate list and they may do it in secret and then they kind of go, they'll, they'll re, uh, uh, convene and they'll compare their names and the names that are on both of their lists, they kind of make it, you know, to the next stage. Uh, when Janine and I made our list, we had all different names, uh, no similarities. On the boys' side, I had Diesel, which she hated. Um, Uh, I had Gerhardus after Gerhardus Voss, which she said, absolutely not, and no offense if your name is Gerhardus. I had Calvin, which she wasn't cracked about either. She actually started to warm up to the name Calvin. She said, you know, maybe maybe we can think about that, and then she Googled uh, the meaning of it, and she said, do you know that Calvin is Latin for bald, and we definitely don't want that. I said, excuse me? Uh, She said, we don't want to do that to our child. I'm like, okay, I still don't see the problem here. What's the issue? Um, but we went back and forth and, you know, we ended up with names like Lucas and Quinn. And uh, if you know our kids' names, you know who prevailed, who prevailed in those discussions. Um, but what we do is we kind of pick a name based on what sounds good, maybe how, how it works with the last name. You say, well, does this have a ring to it? Uh, we say it together and we, what sounds good. But in the ancient Near Eastern thinking, names were not chosen so randomly. In fact, a name actually represented a person's character. So babies were given names based on what they thought that child may grow up to be like. And so if a girl's name was Grace, uh, then that child, they were expecting that that little girl would grow up to be a very gracious person. The child came out and uh, was very hairy right away, like in the case of Esau. Uh, He was named you know, Esau, which means hairy. And so what it is, the child was named according to what the parents thought that the child may actually be like what that child's character may be like. For us, a name is you know, basically a label for the most part. But for the ancient Hebrews, a name, again, expressed the essence of a person's being. Now, of course, nobody gave God his name. Uh, God, unlike anyone else who's ever been born, uh, God chose his own name um, in order to reveal to us his character and his identity. We might say it this way, God's name sums up who He is and what He's about. So when God introduces Himself by His personal name, Yahweh, He is revealing Himself to us, His very nature and His plan. In Hebrew, which is what the Old Testament was written in, the the words are written uh, right to left, and so um, you read them that way. They're not the same characters that we, we have in English, so you don't have any sort of overlap there. Here's what the name of God looks like, the name that God calls Himself, it's sometimes called the tetragrammaton because it only has four consonants. It's, you, know, you read right to left, it's Yahweh or Yutha, depending on uh, how technically you want to get. And the word Yahweh means, I am who I am. Again, or more technically, I will be what I will be. And it's a way of God revealing Himself to us, His own self-sufficiency. Uh, that is to say, God doesn't need us for anything. He doesn't depend on us. We often say... Uh, when we're taking the offering as a form of worship. Look, God doesn't need our money. Of course, this is true. He doesn't need anything from us. It's a way to express God's absolute sovereignty over all things, the God who has always existed, who was never created, but is in fact the Creator. Um, Is a way to express uh, the weight of God's glory. And as the events unfold in in Exodus, we, we see that it also comes to represent God's power, His majesty. The Hebrew names for God, his personal name, Yahweh, other names that were ascribed to him, such as uh, Elohim, Genesis 1 in the beginning, Elohim, um, Adonai, and others. These are names which are translated in our English Bibles as Lord or God. The word Yahweh is translated YORD in all caps. And they symbolize his character, his glory, and his very being. That's why his name is praised because, again, it sums up who he is And what he's about. Psalm 8 1 says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Now, of course, the psalmist is saying, you know, of all the names in the world, you have the coolest name. No, what he's saying is, your name represents your power and your glory and your majesty. You are the living God who made all things for your glory. Psalm 9 verses 9 and 10 the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed a stronghold in times of trouble and I love this next phrase and those who know your name put their trust in you Psalm 13 1.13 blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore here's why it matters so much how we talk about and use God's name this is our first point God's name reveals and expresses his very character so to misuse God's name is an attack on his honor and glory. By his name, among other ways, but by his name, God reveals something of his character and the honor that is due him. And to misuse his name is an attack on that honor and glory. This is why it's such a big deal. This is why it's such a great sin that God says that the one who offends in this way will not be held guiltless. Now, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't use God's name. Of course we should. His name brings us peace. His name is our comfort. His name is a strong tower that the righteous run into and are saved. His name is our deliverance. His name points to the redemption that is ours in Jesus Christ. So we use his name, but we use it in the right way. We use it with reverence. We use it with in worship, in humility, and submission. Now, any sort of comparison I make here is is going to break down in some way, so you'll have to bear with me. But I do think this is helpful. A comparison for our twenty-first century world would be a brand. God's name, in a way, is his brand. And what happens when a brand is tarnished? Well, people start to wonder, okay, what what's this all about? They become confused. What should I expect? And sometimes, a brand can be so tarnished that people decide, I'm no longer going to engage. Now, we can think of all kinds of, in recent history, think about Uber. Uber, uh, there was a, a scandal regarding the safety of its passengers only, what, a year and a half ago, two years ago, and, and they, you know, had to totally rebrand, so to speak, and, and really be on the, the attack. Think about MCI. Anybody ever have MCI, long distance? Um, maybe you don't remember this, but it used to be a huge long distance carrier, but a but a financial scandal, an accounting scandal and so on, impropriety, they just they, they disappeared because their, name, their brand became associated with a scandal. Volkswagen, after the, uh, the emissions uh, scandal. Samsung, remember just a couple years ago, if you had a Samsung and you're talking on it, you're afraid that the battery might explode and catch your face on fire. So they had to do some, they had to do some rebranding and they had, to, they had to get out in front of that. Um, BP, BP. Right? It used to be British Petroleum, but nobody likes the name petroleum and all that it conjures up. And so they changed the name, they changed what it stands for to Beyond Petroleum. So, you know, all these things, a brand, how we view a brand uh, will impact how we see and approach and so on. Social commentator Gary North writes One way for modern America to understand this commandment is to treat God's name as a trademarked property. God has graciously licensed the use of His name to anyone who will use it according to His written instructions. It needs to be understood, however, that God's name has not been released into the public domain. God retains legal control over His name and threatens serious penalties against the misuse of this supremely valuable property. The prosecutor, judge, jury, and enforcer is God. So when we, when we misuse or profane God's name, we are slandering His character, we are besmirching His reputation, and we are tarnishing His brand, so to speak. But how do we do that? Well, there are at least three ways that God's name is misused or abused in the Scriptures, and I want to, point, I want to look at those real quickly and then show how they translate to us. Today. Let's start with the most straightforward. In Leviticus 24, there's a boy, probably a teenager, late teenager, and he has an Israelite mother and an Egyptian father. And by all accounts, he's been cooped up at home, and he goes out and, of his house, and he gets into an altercation with an Israelite man. They get into a fight. And in the middle of this fight, he curses God. Now, we don't know exactly what he said. We're not told exactly what words he uses, but he curses God, and people overhear him. So they bring it to Moses, and Moses said, Well, you know, this is a serious offense. Let's wait on the Lord and see what the Lord has to say. Here's how the Lord responds to this. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring out of the camp the one who cursed, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. And speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native. When he blasphemes the name, he shall be put to death. Now, of course... The punishment uh, is not stoning anymore. This was part of the civil law of Israel. We'll talk more about that in, in the fourth or fifth week of this series. But the punishment is still very serious. God is still very concerned about the way His name is used. The Lord, this, we, we just read, the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes His name in vain. Now, based on what we've seen already, here's the first way that we do this. Okay. 2A, if you're taking notes. We blaspheme God when we cheapen curse, or carelessly invoke the divine name. Now, of course, this includes, but it's not limited to, saying GD, when people say that, when they're angry, frustrated, that is using the name of God carelessly, cheaply, whatever. But it also includes using God's name in an empty way or a mindless way, saying things like, oh my God, or saying things like, I swear to God, or God Almighty, or Jesus Christ, Now, while misuse includes more than that, again, as we're going to see in a moment, it certainly includes this: those reckless ways of invoking God's name or taking the Lord's name in vain. Now, maybe you're thinking, "Well, you just said those names; you just said it like that." Well, I'm using those names in that way for the purpose of instructing us on the value and the weight of God's name. And I'll even go so far: there are those who suggest, and I have to be honest with you, I actually agree with this. There are those who suggest that even saying things like "God bless you." Or praise the Lord without even a thought of the majesty and the weight and the glory of God should be eliminated from our vocabulary. And it would be way better to say, oh, how fantastic, that's amazing, great, awesome, whatever it is, than to use the Lord's name without even considering the character of God, the character of the name we're using. Uh, Biblical scholar Michael Horton says, casual use of God's name is prohibited precisely because it wears away our sensitivity to the enormous reverence we owe it. Once we are able to think lightly of God's name, even in our discussions with other Christians, even when our intentions are pious, it is not so difficult to lower our perceptions of the magnitude of God's name in more pernicious respects. So the bottom line is God's name should only be invoked with reverence, honor, thoughtfulness, or we are in danger of profaning His name. Now, there's another way. In the Old Testament, so God appointed prophets, and those prophets would go, and they would speak to the nation of Israel, and they would have a, ver- there were a variety of prophetic speeches and so on, but most of all, it was this sort of what's called the salvation judgment oracle. And what a prophet would do is he would, he would warn Israel there was a threat of judgment followed by the promise of mercy. So if you continue, if you do this, if you don't do this, this is what's going to happen to you. And then, almost invariably, the phrase that accompanied such an oracle was this, thus says the Lord God. Well, the false prophets, I mean, they became wise to this, and so they started going and they started adding to what they were saying, their false prophecies. They too would say, thus says the Lord your God. Now, these were prophets that hadn't been appointed by God. In fact, they were either appointed by a a king of a neighboring nation or they were self-appointed. And they would say this, and this infuriated the living God. It greatly angered God. So God called them out for it. Here's what he says in Jeremiah 14. And the Lord said to me, "...the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them." They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. Therefore, says the Lord concerning the prophets who prophesy in my name, although I did not send them, by sword and famine, these prophets shall be consumed. What the prophets were doing is they were using the Lord's name to advance their own agenda. They were using the name of God to give credence, to give authority to their own ideas and opinions. Here's a second way that God's name is misused. This is for, for us as we apply this. We profane God's name when we use it to advance our own agenda. Now, let me just give you 90 seconds of how we've done this horribly throughout history, and then let's talk about how we do it today. Now, we've seen this throughout, throughout history. Do you realize that, that some of the worst atrocities in world history have been perpetuated and justified because they've been done, quote, in the name of God. I mean, we think back on history. We don't have to go back that far. Um, you think about the, the trials of uh, 19, 1692 in Salem, Mass., um, the witch trials where we're under the name of God, people uh, were called out and executed. Um, the sack of Constantinople and the Fourth Crusade a few years before that when thousands of innocent people were killed under the name and the name of God. Uh, of course, the, the slave trades and slavery in North America, Some of the most evil and despicable acts in history were perpetuated because of some twisted interpretation of Scripture, some abuse of the Scripture, and somebody claiming to be acting in the name of God. In the words of 19th century African-American abolitionist Henry Highland Garnett, while slavery stretched its dark wings of death over the land, the church stood idly by. And why? And by what defense? Because this is what the Lord says, in the name of the Lord. So it's been done throughout history, but of course we do it in in much more subtle ways ourselves. We justify our own actions by saying, well, this is what God told me to do. Or even worse, this is what God told me to tell you to do. Uh, We take the Lord's name and we use God's name for our own agenda. And you wouldn't believe, maybe you would believe, the number of things that people have said to me over 19 years that they've done or they commit to doing because this is what God said. God told me to leave my husband. God told me that we were not going to be able to provide for this child, so we terminated the pregnancy. God told me to abuse this person in order to exact revenge. God told me not to vote for this candidate, and you shouldn't vote for him either. I like the way Philip Ryken explains this. He says, some Christians say, the Lord told me to do this, or worse, they say, the Lord told me to tell you to do this. This is false prophecy. God has already said whatever He needs to say to us in His Word. Now, Of course, there's also an inward leading of the Holy Spirit. But this is only an inward leading and should not be misrepresented as an authoritative word from God. In other words, we need to be very, very careful about giving our political views, our personal convictions, our ideas about where we should go, or what we should do, some sort of divine authority by saying, this is what God told me to do or what God told you to do. This is one way we violate the third commandment. Now, there's one other way we see consistently throughout Scripture. When Israel was held captive in Egypt, uh, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, Egypt was a very polytheistic nation. That means there were many, many gods. And so what Israel would do is they actually would start worshiping some of these false gods. And then as they're traveling through the wilderness and they encounter people of other nations, They became sometimes they became enamored by these other gods of other nations. And what would happen is, in order to appease the god, in order to be right with these gods, you had to offer sacrifice. Well, the most despicable, the most heinous, the most uh, egregiously wicked of all the false gods was the god Molech, who was the god of the Ammonites. And, and, the, and Moloch, in order to appease the God of Moloch, in order to satisfy God and, and to gain financial prosperity, according to the prophets of Moloch, you had to surrender, you had to sacrifice your own firstborn child by fire. Now think about this on Father's Day. Think about the evil and the wickedness. And yet, there were people of Israel who adopted this practice sacrificing their own firstborn child as a way to appease a non-existent God. And, of course, naturally, this angered God greatly. He, com- he condemned this action with the severest penalty. But what's fascinating is how God describes this sin. In Leviticus 18, he says this, "...you shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech, and so what profane the name of your God." I am the Lord. Now, I would think of a lot of different ways that God might, might describe this horrible, heinous act. But he says the sin that's taking place is they are profaning the name of God. Now, here's why. And this is our sort of the final way, in terms of most pervasively, this command is violated. We dishonor God when by our actions we bring disrepute upon the name by which we're called. And what I'm talking about there is we take the Lord's name in vain by our hypocrisy. By our hypocrisy. By claiming to belong to God, by promoting our Christian identity, and then living in a way that is contrary to our claims. See, those throughout the Scripture, those who have been redeemed by God, those who have been, who have been rescued by God are called, are called what? God calls them those who are called by my name. Those who belong to me. And then, of course, you move into the New Testament and the followers of Jesus. They were initially referred to as the followers of the way. And then, then uh, about a decade later in Antioch, somewhere in the middle of the first century, they started to be referred to as Christians. Uh, Christians, that Greek word li- literally means belonging to Christ, belonging to Jesus, called by the name of Jesus. And when we live in a way that starkly contradicts our namesake, we're actually profaning the name of God. A number of years ago, I this man reached out to me and asked that I would, if I did family counseling. I said, sure, I'd love to meet with your family. And had in my office at the time a sort of a, a, a couch—not sort of a couch; it really was a couch—a couch and a and a chair. And then I had another chair that I sat in. And uh, so I met with this family, and the mom and dad came in. They sat on the couch, and their teenage daughter sat in the chair. And I could tell right away there was a, there was a coldness, there was an animosity. The look at the daughter to her parents almost was one of hatred. And so I started as I always do, as typically doing counseling. I said to, to the daughter, I started with her, I said, tell me, why, why are we here? Why, why are we here? What's brought us to this place in, in your estimation? And she said, I've told my parents over and over, like, I don't believe this stuff. I don't believe the Christianity. I don't believe in Jesus. I don't, wanna, I don't believe in God. I don't want to be part of the church. I don't believe any of this stuff. Her parents very quickly jumped and they said, no, honey, look, we were there when you you made a profession. We we, we remember, it's written in your Bible the very day. We were there when you were baptized. You are a Christian. And she said, I'm not a Christian. I don't believe any of this stuff. And they just kept trying to persuade her. And I said, wait a second. I said, look, why are we trying to persuade her of something that she very clearly says she's, she's not? Now, I understand as a father of four, yeah, I want my kids to to know the Lord and to to run to Jesus in faith and to walk with the Lord, but just because you have something written in the Bible or you were there for a baptism doesn't mean that she's trusting in Jesus. In fact, she's telling you right now she's not. And in fact, it would be far better for her to actually say she's not a Christian if she's going to continue to live in ways that are so antithetical to biblical principles Why would we insist that she calls herself a Christian when she is going to live in a way that's basically thumbing her nose or giving God a shaking her fist at God? When we claim to be Christians, but we live in a way that is absolutely contradictory to the way that God has called us to live, we are profaning and misusing the name of God. Okay, so what do we do about it? Well, certainly if your regular speech... Includes misusing God's name in the way that I just described. Um, you should repent and and embrace God's forgiveness and by the Spirit strive to put off such language. Even if you just use the name of the God flippantly, but the reality is, we're still going to speak God's name casually and at times without the reverence and awe it deserves. You know, we can you can actually take the Lord's name in vain while you're worshiping. If you're thinking about what's in the crock pot or thinking about a game coming up or you're not thinking at all about the use of God's name, we can misuse God's name even while we're singing His praises if our mind is on other things and we're not thinking about the majesty of God. So the reality is we're still going to speak God's name casually. We're still going to use God's name to promote our own agenda. We're still going to use the Bible to defend, in some cases, our unbiblical actions, and most of all, we're, we're never going to live in such a way that our actions are totally and wholly consistent with our confession. I mean, if we, we look at the law and we see the way that we failed and it, there's a, we, we feel the weight of it. Now, we might look at the first commandment, you know, you shall have no other gods before me. You say, I'm not going to worship any other gods. We've already seen the first week that, how we do that. Or maybe we, we looked at the, the second commandment and you said, you know, I'm not gonna, I don't have any carved images. I'm not worshiping any, any sort of statues. We saw it goes beyond that. But if there's ever a command that leaves us completely indicted, it's the way that we use our tongues. Because we use our tongues in so many ways to tear down, to blame shift, to respond. I'm sure that I've already used my tongue in a way that was dishonoring God even today. I got up, I was making myself a smoothie in the Ninja. It was Father's Day. I thought somebody else might do that for me. It didn't work out that way. I'm making myself a smoothie. Actually, my wife volunteered. I need to give her credit. I'm making a smoothie. I didn't put the lid on right. I've got green stuff on me. I'm, I'm, getting, I'm trying to go to... I'm, I'm, I'm sure that I called the smoothie all kinds of names. The smoothie, the, the, the Ninja is not stupid, right? It was a user error, but I'm sure that I used my tongue in ways that were not honoring to God. We do this all the time. When the, when, the, when the biblical writers want to point out, they want to start with the indictment of mankind, our own brokenness, they start with how we use our tongues. You just read uh, Romans 3, the prophet Isaiah who says, Woe to me, I'm a man of unclean lips. We sin in so many ways with our tongue. Now, last week I said the Ten Commandments are both instructive and diagnostic. They instruct us in how to live in a way that promotes human flourishing, in a way that's for our good. But they also diagnose our own sinfulness. They show how far we have fallen from obeying God's perfect standard. But our hope... See, there's there's a negative dimension, there's a positive dimension to each commandment. And the positive dimension is that we ought to cry out to God We ought to cry out to God and plead with Him and pray with Him and commune with Him by the very names He's given us and in the way He's prescribed. And our hope is when we look at God's law and it does mirror our imperfections, it shows our faults, it shows our sin, we remember the one who actually kept God's law in its entirety. We remember the passive and active obedience of Jesus. Now, a lot of churches talk about the passive obedience of Christ. That is to say, He died on the cross for our sins. He absorbed God's wrath for us. But you don't hear as much about the act of obedience. He lived for us. He obeyed every single command in our place so that by faith, His success becomes ours. So every time that Jesus talked about God, every time Jesus invoked the divine name, He did it perfectly and in the exact way that God has prescribed so that... When we put our faith in Jesus, God actually credits that perfect record to us. Our inability is meant to drive us to Jesus who controlled His tongue in in every way and in every circumstance in our place. Isaiah says, sort of looking forward to the Christ, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet He did not open His mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears, silent. So he did not open his mouth. Jesus Christ died for your rebellion, for my rebellion, and for the sinful ways that we use our tongues. When we talk about God profanely or emptily or vainly, and in other, every other way we use our tongues, there's no doubt we fail, we continue to fail in this area. In fact, we're born at at odds with God. That's how we enter the world, at odds with God, enemies with God, estranged from God. And by our continued sin, we heap up guilt on ourselves. The third commandment is yet another indictment against us. But talked about this first week, this whole story of redemption. The gospel story is that all of our guilt and all of our failure was nailed on the cross with Jesus. And again, his success was credited to our account by faith. So when the Lord looks at you, when you trusted in Jesus, when you throw yourself on this, the weight of God who sent his son to die, God sees you actually as a law keeper. The New Testament word is justified. God sees you as someone who's not sinned, who's not ever said the Lord's name in vain, who's not ever said GD, who's not ever in vain spoken the name of God. So you've used your tongue in a way that has dishonored God. Or maybe this morning you just realized that, that you use God's name to advance your own agenda. Maybe it's in your parenting, maybe it's with your neighbors, maybe it's in your job, your vocation, or your political views, or whatever it is, you realize you use God's name to advance your own agenda. Or maybe you've become aware this morning that more clearly than ever, that your life it doesn't match your confession. You claim to be a Christian, but your life doesn't remotely resemble. There's no interest in the things of God. There's no love for God. There's no desire for God's glory. Well, know this. The penalty that God promises for misusing His name was put on Jesus, on the cross, for all who believe. If you are in Christ this morning, you are truly forgiven. Every curse word, every vain word, every impatient word, everything you've said. As my friend Chad Bird says, the weighty bag of transgression that we lug around is full of nothing but air. While we're out attempting a do-it-yourself atonement, true atonement has already taken place at the cross. Every kind of wrongdoing, however minor or major we may think it is, has been dealt with on the cross of Jesus Christ, has been made right in Christ. God's not keeping score. If you're in Christ, you're forgiven. You are loved. And here's how that actually helps us. This is our final point this morning. From the secure position of knowing we are united with Christ by faith comes the power and the desire to rightly speak God's name. I said a few moments ago that we should, when we speak God's name, it should be out of reverence and, and worship and awe and humility and gratitude and submission. Well, how do we get to a place where we use God's name in that way? The power and desire to speak about God in that way comes from where? It comes from a place of acceptance. It comes from a place of having already been delivered and rescued. When we realize that the the length to which God went to save us, sending His own Son, we speak God's name out of gratitude. When we realize that that who God is, this this majestic, all-powerful God who is above our fingering out, who is transcendent in every way, who spoke the word and the world was made. When we realize who God is, we speak God's name with reverence when we realize who we are in Christ, that we are beloved, that we are cared for, that every single detail of our lives matter, we are completely and totally forgiven, we speak God's name in worship. And when we recognize that His ways are good and His commandments are for our good and our flourishing, we speak the name of God out of submission. And we recognize at every turn We can only say the name of the Lord, Abba, Father. Cry out to God as Father by grace alone. Because when we were far off, when we were lost, when we should have been condemned and written off forever, God sent His Son for the ungodly so that we could be forgiven, so that we could commune with God by name. It's only by His grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Thank you this morning that we can worship you, not as a distant deity, but as our very Father. And Father, we thank you this morning that when we come to you, we can speak your name with reverence, with boldness, with humility. We can come to you directly because of the finished work of Jesus. Lord, I want to pray for that person here this morning who realizes maybe this morning by the Spirit's work that his or her confession as a Christian does not match his or her interests or actions. Bring about conviction and the joy of repentance and faith. And for that person here who maybe is worried, as a man told me only a few weeks ago, the way I the way I used to talk, it was an embarrassment to say that I cursed. It was an embarrassment to sailors to say I cursed like a sailor. A person who feels like I've just used my tongue to take the Lord's name in vain, and to tear others down, and to beat down, and to spread gossip, whatever it is, Father, will you help them to realize, and experience, and rest in the forgiveness that is theirs in Christ. Will you help us this morning to celebrate with great joy the grace that saved us, and the grace that will bring us home. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.